Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. We are very excited to present an Artemis podcast series on inspiring women's leadership and conservation. There are a number of reasons why inclusive conservation leadership is vital to the future of our hunting and fishing heritage. Our lands, waters, and wildlife face significant conservation challenges. Working towards effective solutions must draw on the creativity, expertise, and experience of conservation leadership that includes perspectives from all identities and backgrounds. This leadership series will introduce you to dedicated and inspirational women working in all aspects of conservation leadership. We aim to provide insight into their journey and the work that they do. In the end, we aim to inspire you to step into leadership yourself. Together, we will support the next chapter in conservation and help women ascend into local, state, regional, and national conservation leadership roles. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and our co-host today is Samantha Petter. Hi, Sam. Hey, Marsha. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, It's super windy here in Montana, and I imagine some of that might come through my audio, but hopefully we'll (laughs) as things knock around a little bit. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. It's getting warmer on the East Coast, and we're very happy. It broke like 65 today, so the door's open, the window's open, so no wind, but bird sounds which are very nice. That sounds much preferable. Um, That's lovely. I am very excited to host the rest of this leadership series with you. Uh, And uh, yeah, so thank you for joining. Uh, I think we're going to have some fun. Looking forward to it. I've been very much looking forward to talking to our guest today too. Yeah. Can you, before we dive in, can you do a quick intro for our listeners so they are reminded of who you are? They've met you already, but let's remind them. (laughs) Um, My name is Samantha Petter, and I am a decade-plus conservation professional. I'm an avid hunter, angler, and outdoors person, and I've had the pleasure of working with Artemis now for about three years, I think. It started with me going to a workshop to learn how to be confident in Western hunting, because as an East Coast person, originally hailing from Pennsylvania, um, I wanted to learn some Western skills. So I started a connection and a relationship with Artemis over three years ago. and We've just built ever since. And one of the great things about it is I can come back to it. Whatever I'm doing in my day job, this is my passion. And so it's a pleasure to work with people and talk to people who also have that same passion like I do. Thank you for mentioning that. I I'd actually was like, it left my mind how you and I first met. And so it was pleasant to be reminded of that in-person experience way back when that was a lot of fun. Absolutely. It was a picnic table and a couple of very, very passionate other female hunters that I, I still follow and talk to you on Instagram to this day. Excellent. Um, I too am very excited to talk to our guest today. Uh, we are speaking to Dr. Winifred Kessler. Winnie, thank you so much for joining us. Totally my pre- pleasure to do that. I love to start off our podcast with kind of a, just a, uh, an easy in question. And my favorite, because you actually learn a lot about a person with this question is, uh, what's in your freezer? Well, mostly meat wise, we have moose, uh, and moose sausage that we've made from that moose burger. 
and we have salmon and we have halibut and I have a fridge, uh, freezer totally dedicated to the vegetables that I grow in my garden. Oh, amazing. Um, we, we always heavily rely on what we grow or what we, what we get off the land through hunting. I've only had moose once in my life when my cousin harvested one. Um, what's your favorite thing to cook with moose? Oh, my favorite. I think it's our sausages. I adore sausages. And we make these lovely jalapeno cheese sausages. Oh, ooh. that sounds amazing. <laughs> cool. Winnie, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, I'm a wildlife professional. Uh, how long you might ask well if you count from when i was in my master's program then it's been right of 50 years mm. and it's been a fabulous career uh it got off to kind of a shaky start because when i started uh field jobs were not open to women so i would apply to jobs out of my bachelor's degree get turned down so i said fine i'll get a master's and still get turned down so I'll fix them. I'll get a PhD. <laughs> so that's the route I, I went. And uh, at that time, I did get an, a really great job right out of my PhD. It was an assistant professor at University of Idaho. But at that time, I was pretty much alone in terms of other women. There weren't other women. I never had a female advisor or mentor or supervisor my whole career. Um, but I did get a start with some really awesome men who were willing to take a chance on me, sort of renegade types. I was lucky <laughs> to cross paths with them. And early on, as a few other women came in, that made all the difference. We became allies and those relationships have persisted throughout our careers. So my career has been about half in academia and the other half uh, with the U.S. Forest Service. And I retired in 2011. But since then, I've been pretty much almost as busy serving on boards and councils and uh, writing and doing those sorts of things. That's who I am. Thank you. That's this is the part where I try and pick one mm -hmm. of the paths to go down when there are so many interesting paths that I want to go down. Um, and I think I, I guess I, I will start kind of back at the beginning. I didn't realize that there was a point when field positions were not allowed. I knew there was a time when they were not common, um, but, but there was a point. And are we talking specifically about field positions with um, agencies? Yes, all of the above. Uh, I would put in agency jobs and some like nonprofit jobs. And the reason is what made the difference was when the equal opportunity, uh, equal employment opportunity legislation kicked in and uh, some lawsuits began to be filed. That made all the difference. Mm -hmm. There was actual policies in the agencies whereby they would not hire women in field jobs. They had all kinds of crazy fears about, well, you can't send women out in the field. God, there's men out in the field and there's wild animals in the field. And, uh, you know, it's just all kind of crazy beliefs. 
luckily, I, you know, things turned around very fast when I was mm -hmm. in the PhD program. Uh, when that legislation really started to have an effect in the U.S. and, and it kind of bled over into Canada a short while after that. Uh, and so by the time I got out of the, the Ph.D., there were positions in the opening up. But, it, but another interesting aspect of my career, because of that uh, absence of women early on, every job I've ever held, I was the first woman to be in it. Mm -hmm. And that's true of the actual pain jobs I've had. And it's true of a lot of the service things I've done. For example, one thing I'm proud of is I was the first female uh, to enter the Boone and Crockett Club, Club as a professional member. That's and fantastic. that was, gosh, next year will be 30 years. Yeah. So that's that's been interesting. It's a lot better now. I mean, you look around, uh, especially at the university programs, and many of them is female majority. And as well, a lot of the positions and agencies, uh, certainly nonprofits, you look at who's in there, and it's very heavy to women. So we've come a long way. That is interesting. I think Absolutely. I... I mentioned in our podcast last week some random, probably not entirely precisely accurate statistic about how um, agency employees these days, these days are, are, it's almost 50-50 when we're talking about gender um, and just how many women have entered um, agency employment in the field and, uh, and to see that impact leadership as it works its way up through the agency has been um, a really fun journey to watch. Wildlife Society now, I, I heard the figure the other day, I think it's about 40% women, 60% men. Mm -hmm. But the big difference that's really gratifying, whether it's Wildlife Society or agencies or any other employer, the women are now entering and excelling in leadership positions. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, there were a lot of women coming in, but they were entry level. And now they're becoming the leaders, which is fantastic to see. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm proud to say that my employer, the US Forest Service was one of the best in terms of recruiting uh, women and other underrepresented uh, people and accelerating their training and professional development and kind of um, fast tracking them for leadership uh, positions. So some, some places like that, you saw a lot of progress happen faster. And Sam, the point you... about the, yeah, the point about the Wildlife Society, Winnie, I believe, were you one of the first female presidents of the Wildlife Society second. as well? Second, yeah. Second? Uh, I was okay. the second. Diana Hallett was the first. Yeah, Diana mm -hmm. is a retired state uh, wildlife scientist uh, and I think she ran the division, Missouri, I think it was. But anyway, she was a fantastic president. She was the first, the first one. And I had the pleasure of serving on council uh, with her. So our terms overlapped. And then oh, I was awesome. the second. And then we just had the, we just had the third is Carol Chambers. She served her term last year. The COVID president, I call her, because she didn't get to meet with people in person, but we spent a lot of time on Zooms. 
<laughs> so when I uh, was coming up in my my undergraduate work, I believe it was overlapping with your presidency, or at least coming up to it as like a, a past president, because I remember meeting you in Utah. And there was a bunch of female students that uh, we were all in the Wildlife uh-huh. Society in the Penn State chapter. And I was the president. We had a female vice president, or we had like three other women in leadership roles within our just our chapter. And it was like a unique bonding moment for us because we had a couple female professors, but largely men. And to see others like in leadership roles mm-hmm. in the professional society, you had that impact on us. So it was very cool to kind of just witness that. It also might have just been when you were on council, but I do, I remember your presence at the conference and interacting with you. Well, that's the best possible thing I can hear is that, you know, it's made a difference. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So I do want to dive in to uh, the work that you've done exploring the uh, history of women in conservation. Can you tell us a little bit about that focus of your work? Sure. Um, It's not something I set out to do because I didn't realize there was a history of women in <laughs> conservation. I mean, I, not a substantial one anyway. Uh, but for some time, the Wallace Society and its publishing partner, uh, John Hopkins University Press, wanted to publish a book on women and wildlife. And you know, I thought, well, what would you put in such a book? You know, I wasn't really sure. But Carol Chambers and Carrie Nicholson stepped up and uh, offered to edit such a book. And they asked me to write the chapter on the history of women uh, leading to the wildlife profession. And my first reaction was, what history? (laughs) No, that's gonna be a short chapter. Uh, But about that time, that article on uh, Sheila Minor Huff. That's the article about the, the whale um, scientist who was kind of um, lost in the sea of men, the photograph, and uh, with, her, with her name not, not identified and all the other men were, and the, who is this woman? <laughs> and that story um, caught my attention because I said, you know, here we have this amazing woman that, that had a great career and ended up in a top federal position. And uh, she was hidden. She was hidden all that time. So maybe there is a history and maybe it's hidden. So we need to dig into that and see, see just what the truth is about the history of women uh, in the profession or in, in the important lines feeding into the profession. And, I asked my friend Salma Glasscock to join me on this because Salma's a great friend and colleague, and I know that this is an interest of her, hers as well. So Salma and I started digging, and uh, what we found indeed was there's quite an amazing history there, quite a story to be told. Uh, so we developed that chapter for the book. And it starts with looking at the the streams, the two streams, uh, science with a big S and natural history that fed into wildlife. And women had a major, major role, particularly in the natural history stream. And there were some 
really astounding work done by women that was hidden. It wasn't known very well. Um, so it was a great, very gratifying to dig that history out and to highlight some of those individuals and what they accomplished. It's it, so I, re I read the article that where you mentioned Sheila Minor Huff, and it really is just this incredible story yeah. of this, this, this dedicated employee who was in this picture and you have to look to find her yeah. face in this sea of men and she's it's just like right there in the middle almost buried um, and then not named in the description at all is really interesting uh, and and then to uncover her story and hear about um, the amazing work that she did uh, and and like you said the level that she rose to can you remind me what was her position where when, that she retired out of I don't I don't remember the exact position but she ended up as a senior uh, person in the the uh, was it was it National Marine Fisheries or was it Fish and Wildlife Service? I can't remember for sure, but a senior federal executive, you know, she ended up as quite a high position. And we'll link to that story in the show notes. I encourage everybody to take a look at it because it really is um, amazing. And I'm so curious, given that all of these stories are so hidden, how did you even start going about finding them and their contributions? Well, I'll tell you where they're not. <laughs> they're not in the wildlife, the literature that tends to be read by people in the wildlife profession. Hmm. Uh, because I know that literature. I love to read the history of conservation. I thought I knew it. I, I know all the names of all the amazing men that you know pioneered conservation, uh, but uh, but it's the the narrative is uh, very limited. It doesn't include the other people, you know, like women that were were in there. It's just not there. So we had to look elsewhere, and we found uh, quite a few good books about the women naturalists uh, in the, some of the scientific journals more recently have been doing, going back and saying, let's take a look at who's published in our journal, you know, how many women mm -hmm. have published in our journal. So there's some of that work as well as the women's studies type uh, sources. Mm -hmm. Some of the journals that, that you would use in women's studies classes highlight those uh, those individuals and accomplishments and quite a bit of information on why the women were hidden and why uh, we don't have the names prominent. And uh, for example, uh, let's talk about the many amazing women naturalists, uh, natural history experts, whether ornithologists or botanists, there were a lot of them in Europe and as well as the US. And they were, quote, allowed to do those activities. This is women of the leisure class, of course, because um, science was considered uh, not to be on an intellectual and intellectually challenging level as were the classics, which 
hmm. dominated the education of, of the men and boys. Hmm. Uh, women's brains were thought not able to grasp the study of the classics because, well, you're studying such things as the meaning of life. Women can't possibly, their <laughs> brains just can't handle that, right? So they were, in, <laughs> and mostly they were educated at home. So they were encouraged, especially if they had a dad or a brother that was into botany or ornithology, they were, uh, they didn't call it that then, it was natural history. If they had a natural history person or persons in the family, then they were encouraged to, to study that as well, which they did. But um, they were not, they didn't publish, they didn't get their, get credit for what they did. And a couple reasons for that. One is a lot of them didn't perceive that their work was important. They just thought, well, this is my pastime. It's my hobby. I love it, but you know, it's not that important. But the other reason is uh, they would turn their data and their drawings and their records over to men who would publish and it would come out under the men's names. So there's a lot of famous, everybody from Audubon to uh, Cleveland Bent to all, all these important uh, scientific books and treatises came out, had a lot of work contributed by women without credit. So it's kind of hard to dig some of that out, but if you dig, you can find it. You know, you can find out who really did this drawing, who's really, assembled uh, this data uh, and you you can sleuth it out. I've also found in some of my experiences just looking things up that you know pen names were often common or that with a lot of the women's clubs especially that had some history with passing of um, the Pittman Johnson or Pittman Robertson Act. Um, Pittman Johnson a was lot of them. entirely. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's why I, I stumbled from over there. But I found that with a lot of the uh, women that were pivotal in, in the garden clubs that helped to pass the key legislation in the 1930s, they'd take their, they'd be known by Miss, Mrs. John Smith instead of like Mrs. Roberta Smith, right? Yes. And so they took the men's yeah. names, yeah. still had their female surname or acknowledgement, but then also still had their last name and really weren't ever identified as them, their true selves, or they took a pen name. That's right. There was quite a few conservation activists, women, uh, that made a huge difference. I mean, fortunately, they had the financial resources to do these activities. But they, you're right. The, the, they were identified by their husband's names, Mrs. So-and-so. And so sometimes you have to really dig and find out who was this person and what was her upbringing like and what led her to take an interest in bird conservation and you know let's sleuth out that story uh, but there were huge gains made contributions made by women during that era that you're talking about so you know 20s 30s up into the 40s uh, they made a huge difference I'm curious is there uh, a story that you came across in your research that particularly inspired or surprised you? Yeah, let me tell you one that really 
surprised me because it because it kind of has a personal connection uh and it really threw me for a loop <laughs> so i um i got my uh bachelor's degree at berkeley university of california berkeley in zoology uh and at that time the zoology program was number one in in at least the nation, and it might've been, some might argue the world, one of the world's best ones, certainly in the nation. Um, I, I hung around and got my master's uh, degree as well over at the forestry school. But the reason the zoology program was uh, so good is, is it's amazing collection. It was one of the world's best collections of vertebrates. Uh, and, uh, it attracted students from all over the world for that. It was very competitive to get in and it was you know, thought very highly of. So I thought it was great going to that program, but as far as I knew, this amazing collection uh, was attributed to Joseph Grinnell, the first director. I mean, we, no one ever really suggested anything beyond that. Well, then the true story is so much more interesting. And it involves a really amazing woman named Annie Alexander. And she was born in 1867 and um, lived until 1950. And she was a sugar heiress. Her dad had made a fortune in, uh, in Hawaii uh, in the sugar industry and they loved adventure. So for example, when she was quite young, she and her father walked 780 miles across British East Africa, which is of course now Kenya. Mm -hmm. And they had 50, 51 outfitters and porters. And Annie, uh, in addition to collecting specimens with her father, she would supply the whole party with meat every day. She was quite a, sh a crack shot. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately her father died on that trip, which was um, a huge loss for her. But she so loved that type of expedition and collecting and studying and learning that back in uh, California, she started attending lectures uh, at UC Berkeley by John C. Miriam. And he would do these field expeditions, uh, but no women were allowed on them. So she got included by bankrolling them so she'll say well you know if you let me come along i'm going to pay for this expedition well that you know opened up whole new doors so she got to go on these field expeditions major collecting trips uh, both in vertebrate biology and also in paleontology she was quite a good collector of fossils so she developed one of the most amazing collections of bear, uh, bear specimens. And while collecting on one of her collecting trips in 1905, she, she took along Louise Kellogg with her. So she always had a female companion with her so that, you know, I guess nobody would talk <laughs> if it was just her and the men. Well, she and Louise formed a lifelong partnership and spent the rest of their lives going on amazing collecting trips. And at the end of it all, they said, well, we better 
start finding good house for all of these uh, these materials we have. Um, and so uh, Annie Alexander decided, well, I'm going to bankroll the formation of a vertebrate museum at Berkeley. Mm. And I'm going to bankroll a, a museum for paleontology. And I'm paying for it, so I'm gonna call the shots and I'm gonna decide who gets to be director. And uh, I'm setting it up so that it's, it's uh, independent from university politics. And she and Louise donated almost 23,000 vertebrate specimens wow. and about 18,000 plant specimens to wow. that amazing collection. Now, why did I not know that? Right. All the years I spent there, you know, yeah. and they'd always talk about how great this collection was. And it was, it was amazing. Why didn't I know that? Why was that hidden? That yeah. should have been prominent on the front door of the museum. You know, they should have had her picture or something and a write up about her and nothing. It surprised yeah. the heck out of me. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I should have known that. That's a it's an amazing story for so many reasons, and thank you for sharing it. I think part of it is like here you have this 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 woman with the means to sort of set her own path in the world, and uh, and even though she like set it up so it was outside of university politics and all of that, the story still got buried. I find that yes. interesting. Like if there was a story yes, to did. not get buried, you'd think that would be it. <laughs> Right. And why was it that story got buried? There was all kinds of stories that we knew about the great director of it and the great mm -hmm. professors and this and that. Why didn't we know whose collection formed the basis for that, yeah. <laughs> that museum? You know, didn't That's, know that. Yeah. I so, hope now I, I need to go back to Berkeley and check it out and have a look. Right. <laughs> See if they've <laughs> rectified that. Field trip. Let's do it. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's always interesting. <laughs> Winnie, why, what drove you to start to learn more? I mean, for me personally, I had, I was fortunate to have a couple women who had gone before. And, and I've learned that history is a record of what occurred. And it can some, sometimes be different based on who's telling the story, which might like motivates me to find some other articles besides the main articles, right? And I, I kind of fall in love and it's this passion project for me at that point. But it's important to me to know that and know those facts. I wonder what, like, as you've gone forward to figure all this out, what drives you to continue to pursue it? Because you're, you're not done, correct? You're still learning more as, as you've built up. Even if you're retired, you've still been active in documenting so many of these stories. What drives you to continue to do that? Well, I what the driver was on this whole thing was uh, writing some chapters and some articles to share my discoveries. Um, and I'm hoping it generated interest in others to dig a little deeper. Um, and now I can't say right now, I'm not working on a research project where I'm writing for a particular um, book or article, but I definitely keep an eye out for these kinds of stories. And fortunately, there are more of them now. Um, 
And, you know, just exactly like what you're doing now with this podcast, let's get the stories out there because <laughs> they're just so amazing. They're so amazing. And, and we hope to like another hundred years in the future, if people want to know what the women's story was in hunting and fishing in the, in the, in the early two thousands, hopefully this will be a good record. Um, I, I want to, Sam, did you have any other questions before I keep us going? Uh, I'm trying to maintain on a track of, of concepts, but I, I would love to just learn more about Winnie's experience as one of the first, first women doing yeah. this or first woman doing that. We've had a lot of conversations, you and I about it. And just like Winnie, from the perspective of being a first woman, I've been a first woman in some things. I think Marcia and I have talked, she's been in, in some other situations too. And in women listening that are trying to ascend to leadership roles will also be first in some capacity. Um, it, it brings about an emotional toll. It brings about a responsibility at times, perhaps, depending on how you hone that, that leadership skill. And so just your experience and being some of the first and, and how you reflect on that as you've like gone about your career. One advantage I had was growing up with two older brothers. <laughs> so I've, I, and I, they got to do cool things that I didn't get to do. So I became a little resentful and I think it shaped my perspective on things, you know, it's like, yeah, there were an awful lot of people who didn't think I belonged or women didn't belong. They don't belong in these PhD programs. They don't belong in these jobs. They, you know, just don't belong. And, and I, uh, it was kind of echoes of my childhood. <laughs> and what do you mean I don't belong? Why shouldn't I be able to do what they do? Yeah. You know, so there, there was some of that uh, kind of refusing to accept somebody else's opinion about whether I belonged in that field or not. That said, uh, it seemed really important to me and maybe it's my personality, but I wasn't in the, in the face of my colleagues. I tried to form bridges and get along with them, um, be one of them, right? Uh, and that seemed important in maybe helping to change some attitudes about, you know, perceived problems of having a woman in this field or in this job. One of the most positive things that happened as women came in is they changed the culture of teams and organizations. And I observed this, but it's also been borne out by the research that women have quite different leadership styles than men and quite a different style of engaging. So in the early days when it was just the men, if there was a meeting, they'd talk over each other. There were no agreed upon behavioral norms. It was whoever could shout the first. And you know, it was really hard to get a word in edgewise. <laughs> and, that was tough. Uh, I had an amazing colleague 
uh, my first research project, this is in my master's, and she and I got a project with the US Forest Service. It was a fire related project. And so we had to go to these meetings and her way of dealing with establishing, uh, I guess who she was, or maybe she just wanted their attention. The first thing she would do when she got in would, uh, she'd light a pipe. And mm -hmm. I mean, everybody smoked then, mm -hmm. right? And she'd ask them for a match to light her pipe and jaws dropped and like totally kind of discombobulated the men and she'd puff on her pipe and uh, we'd carry on. It was, I mean, I would could never have done anything like that. It wasn't my personality. But um, as more women came in, I mean, the research shows that whereas men tend to just focus on the outcome or the goal, you know, okay, we're a team. We got to get from here to there. That's what counts. Women, uh, also concerned themselves with the relationships on the team that are needed to get there and checking in with each other and setting behavioral norms and rules for you know who gets to talk and uh, we're gonna hear everybody's opinion. And it just changed the culture so much. It's such a much better working environment now and culture and uh, kind of the norm these days is a much better norm than I recall from the early days. It's so interesting. Oh, Sam, go ahead. No, it is. It, it's extremely interesting. And like, you know, I, I have a shortlist career so far, right? And just some of the things you're describing that were women's adaptive behaviors, I'll call it, <laughs> to find influence mm -hmm. in the industry and in the profession. I are still relevant today. Like I still witness people doing them to assimilate and gain influence and, and not a negative connotation, just, just in general, like to work a room and to be able to get in and start to build up some um, network and, and influence to get their ideas passed. I've witnessed it still. And so we've come so far yet we're still in like history making mode perhaps because there's still so many just different ways to figure out how to get into that leadership role that you're describing that still applies today. Like I've seen them happen and, and it's just, it, it, it's something very interesting. They just kind of ponder about like, if somebody wants a leadership role, how can I continue to go forward and give some great tips? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Go ahead, I was just going to mention too this whole this whole business of um, how come the women were hidden for so long? How come uh, even though hidden, they didn't seem to care they were hidden? Yeah. How come uh, so much of them just readily turn their information over to others? Uh, don't really seek to be in the limelight, and I truly believe that imposter syndrome is a real thing and it's very widespread amount among women i'm you guys are familiar with imposter syndrome i would take it deeply um, and personally it, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. so i'm oh i'm i'm like huge i have a huge imposter syndrome absolutely have i always have and a lot of women have it Maybe some men do too, but not as much. 
And so women are always, you know, whereas if a man gets an opportunity to get a promotion or a leadership position or an award, their reaction is, well, I earned it, you know? Whereas a woman, a lot of women, it's like, oh my God, really? Did they make a mistake? (laughs) There must be a mistake here. That can't have happened to me. No, you know, what, why am I getting this promotion? Am I really ready for this? But you know, it's, it's that kind of self-doubting thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's, um, it's there. Uh, However, um, most of the women I know, they may suffer from that, but you just got to step up and that's the importance of having, I think, allies other women who feel that way or have had those experiences and uh, people around you telling you, of course you can do that. Why do you think they picked you? Of course you got that award. You earned it. You know, we need to, we need to help each other out with that because we really do suffer from that insecurity. Not, a, not all of us, but a lot of us do. And, and I think we need our colleagues and telling us, you know, yep. And I think there's another, um, I think there's another part of it too. And it really resonated with me personally. Um, Again, just circling back to the article you wrote about Sheila Minor Huff and that that fantastic quote at the end, um, where she said, when you know, like, I think you asked uh, why she never set out to be recognized for the work that she did. And her response was, when you know inside yourself who you are and what you are doesn't matter. And I like, this is something I've been thinking personally for myself too. A, I would love to know what you think about that response to the question, but B, when we're talking about mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, um, which in my, in the last decade of my life is something that I've learned to recognize. It's like, this is what this is right now. And I can have coping strategies to move past it and move through it. And a lot of those strategies involve relationships, like you mentioned. Um, but then there's this mm-hmm. other side of me where, I know that if I talked about the work that I did more, I would probably progress more quickly. Uh, but I have the same mindset that Sheila did. Like, I, I know I'm doing good work and I like the work that I'm doing. So what does it matter what other people think? Um, and I think that's another mm-hmm. part of it too, where we're not necessarily telling people about what we're doing. Uh, yeah, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about that as kind of the other side of imposter syndrome. I know really uh, ambitious women, so <clears throat> so I don't want to, uh, and and I don't mean that in negative light at all. Confident, ambitious women—they're wonderful. But so many more women I know are have the attitude that Sheila Minor Huff expressed that well. When you know inside yourself who you are and what you are, does it matter? So what they feel is that they've given their jobs their absolute best. Uh, they've reached some personal goals, whatever those might have been. They've moved the needle on uh, conservation in some way. Uh, They've achieved uh, worthwhile things. So that's what counts, knowing that you've done those things. Why do you need to uh, 
advertise that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> really get out there and toot your horn. Um, I just know a lot of women that are that way. They're mm -hmm. kind of reserved and um, modest. And I know men like that too. Mm -hmm. But in general, I think women tend to feel more that way. They take a lot of satisfaction in feeling that they've accomplished something and that's what matters. Uh, they've made a contribution toward conservation, toward science, toward science, toward <clears throat> realizing the balancing act or whatever it is that's important to them, uh, that's what counts. They don't need to toot their horn so much. Yeah. And, you know, we see this over and over. <laughs> I've been on a lot of selection committees and, inter you know, where there's interviews and it, time after time, the men will go in there and just, extol their strengths and um, promise the world just strong. And it's interesting that the men on the selection committee go, yeah, wow, that guy's got it. Well, the woman comes in and you ask her the question, she goes, well, that's not one of my greatest strengths, but I am committed to improving on that. Or they're, you know, they tend to downplay Mm -hmm. what, what they can do or what they have done. And the men on the committees perceive that as weakness. Yeah. And I'm going, no, they're <laughs> honest. <laughs> they're not overselling themselves. Don't let those other guys oversell. It's a different style, mm -hmm. but I really think it's gender based or it, it could, maybe it's culturally gender based. What I'm saying is there is a difference between men and women and how they present themselves, whether it's an opportunity for a job or a leadership position, they tend to lowball themselves, the men tend to highball. So there's that difference. It is interesting. I think it's, 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 and, and again, I think, you know, there's value in both, right? I think, and as you've mentioned, like there, there, there are value in both perspectives. I think the important part is knowing, um, either as a hire or as a selection committee, like being, like knowing what other factors may be at play, um, and then also as an individual when you're in those situations, knowing when you may need to communicate differently, um, and just being aware of the differences and how they're perceived and where they come from is important. Yeah, I think selection committees need to be self-aware that way of how your own biases with respect to how you react. <clears throat> and also be aware that there are these differences and there's cultures too, 100%. where yeah. they always, uh, it, it's very improper to uh, brag about yourself, mm -hmm. to, yeah, to talk, to talk that way. It's, it's very improper to do that. So they won't. And so the members of selection committee have to be aware of those cultural differences and be willing to kind of fill in the blanks from everything else they have before them. You know, the, yeah. the uh, letters of recommendation, the CVs, whatever it is, because that person is not gonna sell themselves. It's 
contrary to their upbringing. Mm -hmm. And especially nowadays where we're trying to build diversity on our teams, uh, really, really have to keep that in mind. And that's why we need diverse selection committees as well. Absolutely. Who are aware of those differences. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a challenge right now for, for women in natural resource professions and also in, in the board side of things too, and the volunteer side too, because it's what you're describing is, is characteristics that can change depending on the environment, right? Like I was, we were, mm-hmm. I know all of us hold many multiple master's degrees or PhD. So <laughs> I think we've all understood the value of education. <laughs> and not only that, coming from the top schools from certain areas too, we all have that background. But I think, you know, our experiences have taught us that your knowledge takes you the farthest when you can back up your ideas, right? And so we know that we have, we go to the places where the best thoughts are had. In this environment, that could be a great thing. But if you come across too boastful, you're in one category of a candidate. But on the contrast, if you don't tell people that, then they're just going to assume you don't have that quality to bring to the table. Yeah. So it's mm-hmm. perhaps more challenging than ever to be be sitting at these tables trying to get a seat, whether it be a promotion, a board seat, what have you, because you always have to know how to read that room and say, okay, well, how do I need to present myself here? And I think, you know, perhaps in certain people's upbringings, they were taught those skill sets. I was taught different skill sets, like how to hunt and fish from like a young age, but cotillion wasn't necessarily one of mine, let's say. <laughs> and that's at least what I attribute to. But like in this environment right now where, where you're not only questioning everything, you're also questioning how to present yourself. And so uh, that's why the quote um, that you, you've repeated, Marsha, is so meaningful to me as like a, a navigation beacon, because like, I always have to check in with myself when I'm putting myself out there and I say, why am I doing this? Am I doing this? And just to align myself, because I found that my passion allows me to assert myself for the right reasons in the right room around the right people. But I still, I still come across that imposter syndrome all the time. I'm like, am I supposed to be here? Like what, what, who, what are people doing around me? And, and why am I qualified to be here? You know, but again, just like you guys, we have the degrees to be there. We have the experience, we have the knowledge, we have the passion. But again, it's just kind of like, wait, are we sure? Yeah. <laughs> Which is the imposter syndrome 101, like that I've come to learn it from anyway. Yeah. And, and you have to ask a different question. So let's say you are invited or have an opportunity to join a group and you're the odd one out. Uh, that does not mean you haven't got what they don't have. You're lacking in some way or... You don't fit. It means that you are bringing something they don't have and they need that. It's, uh, you know, I've joined boards that were pathetically, pathetically white male, just sad to look at. (laughs) And my first reaction has been just to say, they... How could they still in this day and age look like this? I got to walk out of here and not be a part of this. But then I say, well, you know what? They got to start somewhere. (laughs) So maybe I'll give it a go. Uh, But it's hard when you walk in there and you don't look like everybody else, or maybe your background's different than everybody else. You're coming from a different angle and they're looking at you like, 
song. Is this is this is this what it means to recruit diversity? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, it can be uncomfortable at first, but uh, it it transforms. You know, it eventually the transformation does happen. It it usually takes a critical mass of quote different people to come into a, a body of people, but it happens. Yeah, it's got to start somewhere. And well, then, go ahead. Uh, just a just a comment concept there too. As we kind of look at boards and everything, and and we talk about the concept of first, and and people enabling others. You know, I do know that the Artemis podcast garners some male listeners as well, and so Woo-hoo. just in conversation, there is there is an opportunity too to provide that environment of of bringing different perspectives to the table. I I guess I would love to highlight the chance i've joined just like we talked about first many many boards where i was the first woman or the first millennial let's call it but that um environment mm-hmm. if it's the right environment has been okay it's been great actually I, I probably had more success in those environments than in others and and so there's a concept there of like approachability um that's enabled by our counterparts too and so just kind of understanding mm-hmm. the, as we look to pick leadership roles out and, and ascend into leadership roles, an environment that is, you know, exclusively male may not be what is described as like harsher critique. Maybe you're being asked to be, like you've said, when you, you're being asked to be there because you can offer that perspective in a, in a humble way or in a, in a way that others can hear. And so that's such a positive thing to just consider as, as board invitations are made and people are recruited there is that aspect to consider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On that theme, um, one of the coolest things that I've had happen, uh, this is when I was uh, coming into my term as president of the Wildlife Society. And I had said that part of my agenda, I wanted to do uh, something to advance women and diversity. I wasn't quite sure what that would look like though, but fortunately I had Carol Chambers, my idea person who said, let's start a women of wildlife uh, initiative uh, group. Let's start with a, uh, like a reception at the, at the annual conference. It just happened to be in Hawaii, which was nice. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And we'll, we'll have some free drink tickets. So that'll help. And <laughs> I said, so do you mean, do you mean, are we just going to have women come? And we thought about that. We said, no, that wouldn't be right because then the men will feel alienated and suspect. And uh, besides, women are not going to advance nearly as fast unless women, uh, men help them. Mm-hmm. So we define the women of wildlife as uh, anybody who uh, wants to, you know, or, or is willing to advance uh, women in the profession. And we said, well, maybe a few guys will show up, especially if we have free drink tickets. Oh my God, the doors opened and throngs of people came in and the men were so excited. They just 
thought this was great and they wanted to help. And since then it's evolved into, uh, oh, we have symposia and seminars and panels and all kinds of things besides, uh, as well as a reception, but the men have been great, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, there's a lot of men that really desire I think they've observed themselves, like I have, that things work better. <laughs> There's a lot of improvements that can be made when you have more diverse teams. And they're right in there. Uh, and they share a lot of the concerns, you know, things about work-life balance and family and all those kind of things. They're just right in there with the women. So mm -hmm. that was the smartest thing we did, I thought, was how we defined women of wildlife. It wasn't just women. <laughs> I, I love that. I love how the, the phrase that you mentioned that um, we'll get there a lot. Like we, oh gosh, what did you say? Uh, it just flew out of my head, but it was something about um, we'll get there a lot quicker um, if the men are there to help us. Um, and I think it's so the men are on our side, right? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's so true yeah. with all levels of inclusivity, right? It's not... Um, one of my favorite quotes mm -hmm. is that you need somebody on the inside pulling the door open just as you have the people on the outside pushing the door. Yes. Um, you have to have both. Oh, wow. that's great. Yes, that's and, exactly right. No, yeah. that's excellent. And we have, we're, we have a, what we call art of men in our community. <laughs> who, who we, oh, good. <laughs> who we love and appreciate very much. Um, because yeah, yeah, it's it's an initiative that we all need to move forward together, and it's good for all of us. It's not it's not just good for women. It's good for everybody. Um, and I, again, I think mm -hmm. that's true for all efforts at inclusivity. We all uh, there are improvements that can made and be made in our lives in all aspects of inclusivity. Hundred mm -hmm. percent. Yeah. I. 100%. I want to take a quick break where we are going to hear. Um, from some of our sponsors, and then we will be back uh, for more of this wonderful conversation. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Okay, welcome back. So I sort of want to pick us up uh, a little bit where we left off, Winnie, um, because uh, as I mentioned, this is this conversation is part of our Artemis Leadership Series. Um, and the work with that series uh, is to inspire women to take on volunteer leadership service and conservation, specifically volunteer bold board roles. Um, and I think as we've talked a little bit already, you have extensive volunteer leadership experience under your belt, um, including being the past president of the Wildlife Society. So first, thank you so much. Um, for your leadership and the difference that you've made uh, in the conservation work that you're doing. And second, uh, what advice do you have for women who are interested in pursuing a leadership position? Well, uh, 
leadership i you're we're talking mostly like volunteer leadership service is that what we're talking here now yes it is yeah okay great good okay so um i have done a lot of that uh in fact once i retired um it was hard to tell I was retired because I was still working just as many hours every day. It was just, wasn't getting paid for it. Right. Right. But, uh, but you know, so it's always been important to me, but I've got to be honest about how I kind of stumbled into it. I mean, you don't, you don't just automatically begin in leadership positions. It's kind of like a, a training and stepping up thing. So the way I got started, again, being honest, was uh, I, I find it very hard to say no, especially <laughs> when somebody I know and respect is asking me to do something. And I also had, I mentioned this, I had some really awesome male mentors that would push me a lot. They'd push me to do this or push me to do that or step up and do this. And between imposter syndrome and feeling, oh, my God, how am I going to find the time? It was, you know, kind of a daunting thing, but I couldn't say no. So I started doing these volunteer service kind of things, stepping up for committees and different things, do special projects. And what I've learned from that, and this is the the important message I, I guess I have for, for the for the audience is it's easy to think about one more darn thing on your plate how to squeeze it in you know but think of it differently when I really think about the the things I stepped up for earlier in my career I couldn't have paid a fortune to get such good professional development Mm -hmm. (laughs) I couldn't have paid for it I it was amazing opportunities to push myself a little and to do things that uh in my regular job I wasn't uh able to do yet so things like for example my very first experience with strategic planning was in a volunteer context. And it was great because uh, the next job I had with the Forest Service, they said, we gotta do a strategic plan. I said, no problem, know how to do that. And same thing with international work. Uh, I I stepped up to do some international kind of committee work and that led to international travel and projects and uh, networks and all kinds of amazing things. So, uh do step up and try to pick those opportunities that that will help you grow that will think of it as professional development don't just think of it as a job i got to slug through yeah. so do be picky i mean if it's something you truly don't want to do i mean like me and fundraising, no, I'm no good at fundraising. <laughs> That's not me. But other things, you know. Uh, so if so, if it's uh, 
if you get an opportunity to volunteer for something or somebody asks you to do something, is it going to help you grow? Are you going to learn new things and push your range of experience and position yourself so that next time a promotion in your job comes up, maybe it's something that better qualifies you. So that's kind of what I did I did throughout my career. And when I really think about which one of those would I have given up? And I think about it, I go, no, none of them. They all offered some really interesting experience and developed some skills I wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. So if you do that, then I think it naturally positions you then for things like board and councils and things like that, because you have that whole track record, not just of your job you did, but you have a track record of stepping up uh, to these service positions. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's very helpful. uh, If you're planning, if you want to get to that point later on, now would be the time to take advantage of some opportunities. It's such a, that's, yes, that's, such fantastic advice for a number of different reasons. And I think in looking back on my own experience, um, I wasn't quite sure where, what direction I wanted to go or where I wanted to take my career. And so I volunteered in a couple of different places and, and then found something that really spoke to my passion and decided to go all in on that. So I, I wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. agree that these volunteer experiences, which people are hungry for and organizations are hungry for and governments are hungry for, um, Mm -hmm. you can use that, uh, to foster your own growth, both personally and professionally. And I also think in, in the advice that you gave, um, I heard, uh, just kind of the value of reframing, because I know that my body is well-trained when I think I have to go to work to like put out certain hormones and, uh, you know, adopt a certain attitude and maybe dig my heels in and think about all the things I'd, I'd rather be doing, right? Like there's this, this response that I have when I define certain activities in certain ways. Um, and I found that if I define them differently, if I rename them, um, then I can kind of like put a stop to that, that, in, that mm-hmm. reaction, that habitual reaction that I've entered into. Uh, And so if you look at this kind of um, volunteer work or leadership work and don't define it as just another thing to do and another responsibility that you've taken on, but like reframe it. And um, I found that that lets me approach it a little bit more eagerly. Yeah, I should probably offer a caveat though. I, I was really fortunate in that the jobs I had the employers I had uh, encouraged um, service work. Mm. So while in universities, it's expected you'll do that, right? You'll do service uh, in your discipline. And the Forest Service was absolutely great that way. They encouraged uh, active participation in... um, scientific organizations, attending conferences, stepping up for committee work, standing for office, uh, doing international exchange work. They were great. I hope they're still that way. I don't know, but um, it will vary. I, I, I know that my colleagues 
in state uh, agencies didn't have as quite uh, encouraging um, employment situation to step out and do things. So that's part of it too. I mean, you have to, all the service I did while I was working was done with the full blessing of my employer. So mm -hmm. not everybody's that lucky, but, <clears throat> but you could turn that around because <laughs> once I got to the point where I was the uh, director, I encouraged my people to do the same thing. It's like I tried to give to them the same opportunities and, courage and encouragement that I had gotten. Mm -hmm. So it kind of play it forward. Yeah. Sam, any last questions before I transition us uh, to our closers? Where my mind goes as I listen to this and consider that my volunteer work inspires me. As we look forward to building a community where sportsmen and women all have a seat at the table, we have talked about in, in the podcast here um, how things have changed and become better. Where do we look to next as a challenge or an opportunity, perhaps, to address some concerns or, or barriers for women? We've done some research and everything, but in your professional mm -hmm. experience, what do you think we should be focusing on? let's say for the next decade or the next generation mm -hmm. of sportswomen. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that uh, what's made a huge difference in the last, oh gosh, couple decades anyway, is tapping into this demand that was unrecognized for so long. So there weren't many women particularly hunters, uh, when I started out. Um, but there was this huge desire to learn those skills because there's so many women that love the outdoors, want to provide nutritious food for their families, want the satisfaction of, um, of bringing home food. And Luckily, a few people, you know, like Christine Thomas and a few others figured that out and, you know, started offering um, uh, becoming an outdoors women programs and encouraging women to into that space. And that's made all the difference in the world. It seems to me now that there's quite a lot more interest uh, as women look at the hunting community and say, well, there are people who have the same motivations and interests I do. It's not all, you know, like portrayed a bunch of guys trying to compete for the biggest animals, whatever. No, no, there's a whole community of people there that hunt for a lot of different reasons, the same ones I do. The outdoor experience, the personal challenge, the, the food aspect. So the more we can do to uh, keep welcoming those kinds of folks in and diversifying and <clears throat> uh, engaging in important forums where wildlife matters are decided. I know one of the things that my understanding that Artemis does is uh, kind of tries to interest women and groom them for such things as uh, state wildlife commissions. Yes. That's huge. That is huge. 
<clears throat> because they have really important voices that need to be heard. And uh, we need to diversify those bodies. And that's, the, you know, really, really an important way to, to start to uh, achieve good outcomes, not just for, you know, for women, but for, for the resources themselves. So, so that's a huge one. Yeah. Um, yes. My favorite part of my job, <laughs> if I'm, aside from this podcast, of course. Um, you got a great job. <laughs> you know, I do. I do. I enjoy it. And I, um, I, I feel very lucky. Um, I do have a couple of uh, last questions that I want to, to run by you um, mm -hmm. before we leave. One is, can you give us some book recommendations that you've come across that you think we should dig into book recommendations on the history of women oh for like the, the history yeah. of his history of women yeah so uh i'm really excited about this book that's coming out <laughs> women yeah. of wildlife i i think that's a title if not uh it's something close to that uh it's going to be out this fall Okay. So the editors are uh, Carol Chambers and Carrie Nicholson, and it's being published by John Hopkins University Press. So watch for that. Will do. Um, as well, uh, an author that Selma and I depended on a lot when we were doing our, uh, our chapter uh, is an author named Marsha Bonta, B-O-N-T-A. Yeah. And in particular, she's got yeah, she has a book called Women in the Field, America's Pioneering Women Naturalists. That was published in 1991. And she also wrote American Women Afield, Writings by Pioneering Women Naturalists, 1995. Really great reading. Great. So I don't know if you know this, but Artemis has a book club. <laughs> and we pick three books every year. <laughs> that we read to kind of push yeah. our understanding um, in the, the, uh, and include more voices in our understanding of the natural world and of hunting and fishing. And so those uh, will definitely be added to the list. Um, and I can't wait for your book to come out in the it's fall. Good. Yeah. yeah, well, it's Carol's and um, Carrie's book, but yeah, I can't wait for it to come out either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Winnie. We'll, we'll do our closing question in just a second. But before we do, I've really enjoyed this conversation okay. and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Oh, I have too. I've really enjoyed meeting you and having this lovely chat with you. Uh, before we head out, a quick note to our listeners to be sure to register for Bass Tactics. It's uh, $5 for a whole three months of community and expert information. Um, and again, we're excited to partner with Angie Scott from the Woman Angler and Adventurer on that. So visit the link in our registration or visit the link in our show notes or head over to our website for more information on that. And we hope that you are reading Hunting and Fishing in the New South by Scott E. Giltner for our book discussion in May. Again, registration link for that in the show notes. We hope to see you there. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. If you are interested in learning more about the Artemis Leadership Program, please send an email to artemis at nwf.org. Thanks so much for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. Until next time, 
Be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm-hmm.